Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is the Ringer's very own basketball expert columnist, Kevin O'Connor. So we got KOC on a couple months ago to talk shop about the change in the NBA and how the three-point shot and data and analytics have fundamentally altered NBA basketball and basketball forever. Um, it's not the basketball I grew up learning to watch which was the low post play and Patrick Ewing and the Detroit Pistons and even the Michael Jordan Bulls, what you see today is completely different. There's no positions anymore. The three-point shot reigns supreme and layups. It's about maximum efficiency and numbers. And once you understand data, you know, it's hard to go back the other way and the pros and cons of this new kind of basketball and how quickly something in our lifetime in a very short period of time evolved. And anytime I think you can look at a part of culture and see something change pretty much overnight, even though that overnight probably took 15 years. I like to study it. I want to better understand it, not just because of basketball and my fandom and being a better like sports fanatic. I actually think that there are things you can apply to your own industry. So I like to see how that might change in food and vice versa. So if you're not a foodie, but you love sports, particularly basketball, or if you don't know anything about basketball, and you understand food, maybe this bridge might help out. It's not perfect. I understand this is a podcast. We're also just trying to have fun, but I do believe there's kernels of truth in here. And it's something I hopefully over the period of time we do this podcast, we'll be able to better explore. This is just sort of throwing some darts in the dark and seeing what we hit. So I needed to talk to an expert as to why the three-point shot and how data has fundamentally changed basketball. And we make some, I make some, maybe some poor analogies to QSR and the discovery of umami for the modern-day chefs and just how fast-paced things are moving. I will shut up now. Here's my conversation with Kevin O'Connor. All right. We're keeping it in the, the Ringer neighborhood today. I've been meaning to get someone that knows basketball way better than myself, and we are graced to have Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. KOC, <laughs> basketball guru. And, um, you know, it's funny. I read a few comments when we had Kevin Clark, who covers football, is like, oh, the Ringer's just making Chang fucking do these things to cover sports. <laughs> like, no, actually, this is my idea. And I love talking to people that know about sports, not just as a, a fan, but the business behind it, the philosophy behind it, and the trends behind it. And the one reason why I'm talking about sports, whether it be football or basketball, is there's a lot of people that don't know about the inner workings of food that might be able to find a correlation or association via sports. Maybe this can help bridge the gap. And it's illuminating for me to talk to someone and get their insights that are sort of like best in class to give me a better understanding of what's going on in the world, particularly in food. So I am honored to have KOC. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dave. As somebody who doesn't really know how to cook much besides turkey burgers. Just turkey burgers? <laughs> Why turkey burgers? Uh, it's just a good, good meal. I cook them in a healthy way. It's just a good little okay. snack for lunches sometimes. Here We're going to have to talk yeah, about the turkey burger at another yeah. another day. Yeah, I know, yeah. We will, we will. I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I feel like I can learn how to cook. It's just about finding the time. That would be like the equivalent of saying, like, I am a huge fan of the slam dunk contest. <laughs> 
It's like my highlight of my year, man. Like uh, I just can roll in all those clips all the way to Dominique Wilkins and just I love the slam dunk contest. So we're like, whoa, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're like, actually, never mind. <laughs> Let's get somebody else. <laughs> um so this would be the second time we're talking about sports in a meaningful way that's not just with like Bill or Kevin. And I feel like it might be more relevant today in food if we understand what's going on in basketball. So before I lose everyone and you give us one star review, I beg of you to hear Kevin and myself out. In the past 10 years, everything's changed in basketball. Everything. What has changed? Three-point shooting revolution has happened. What is that? Basically, the NBA installed the three-point line in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And over the years, it's steadily more teams started shooting more threes. But this decade, it has just exploded. The teams like the Warriors and the Rockets just began just shooting a lot of threes for the season. The Rockets attempt 46% of their shot attempts from three. The league is going to break a record. And the reason behind this change is simply this. Three points is worth more than two points. It's a more value shot. It's replaced mid-range jumpers. So behind analytics, behind basic numbers, teams are just shooting more threes, and that has changed the way the game looks with more passing, more movement, it's a more free-flowing game, whereas in the past it was more, you know, throwing the ball to the post, throw the ball to Shaq, throw the, the ball to Hakeem down low. The game just looks drastically different now. So shooting a three-point shot, there's a conversations about, like, who's greater, who's actually the best team, so on and so forth. But what I find riveting, quite frankly, is what is celebrated, what is important, and who went, you know, the way of the dodo bird, right? And... Growing up, watching basketball before Michael Jordan, it was really about the low post, the center. It was this plodding half-court offense that was all the rage, right? It was not all the rage. It was the only way to play basketball. You had to play that way. And the game had the big men to play that way. But yeah, that's changed now. It's the Stephen Currys of the world. It's the Damian Lillards. He's got the smaller players on the perimeter. Even the Kevin Durant's bigger guys too. Big men are shooting more threes now as well. But in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s, what would be a typical game and who was like the most celebrated players? Well, I mean, that's what's changed. Each decade, the game has seen a different look. Like in the 70s, the game was played at a very fast pace. Then in the 80s, it slowed down. And into the 90s, it slowed down even further um, where you had those low post players like the Hakeem Wands, the Patrick Ewings, these big men. But I think over the years, like in, in basketball, and I'm curious maybe if there's like a, something with cooking as well here, but like I think rule changes have driven a lot of the evolution of the game, whether it was adding a three-point line, whether it was removing hand-checking, which is something in basketball where you're not allowed to, like, as a defensive player, steer the player with the ball. You're mm -hmm. not allowed to touch his arm, hit his arm, hit his shoulder, and put him where you want him. You weren't allowed to do that anymore, and that opened up the perimeter game for players like Steve Nash, and then later players like Stephen Curry to shoot more threes. And we've seen these little rule changes over the years that have pushed the game in a certain direction. So I guess the type of player that can excel in today's league is a little bit different. The way we observe those players, you mentioned like Shaq, also someone like Allen Iverson. He would be viewed differently in today's league because in his day, he was a high-volume scorer. He took a lot of shots. And in today's game, efficiency is what's valued, getting a lot of points with fewer shots. Right. You talk about rule changes— I don't know if this is accurate, but I think the biggest rule change is how hard you're allowed to work your employees, right? Oh, like yeah. the 40-hour work week, something I lamented for a long time, now I'm embracing because there's no point in fighting it. It is what it is, and we need to adjust. 
And what that's created is a more open flow of like what people know and how much they're willing to fight to get that knowledge. So honestly, that thing has created a more free flowing organization where it's like, I don't have to be beholden to one group forever. I, I guess it's more maybe like free agency, quite frankly, like Kevin Durant right now is holding the entire yeah. NBA hostage. That is a very far-fetched example of what a cook can be, but I can imagine that. Hold out for more money, new contracts, create right, leverage like, for himself. They are in demand. They are in control. Cooks can hold a, a restaurant hostage on. That was never the case before, right? Like, I want to say hostage is just, it's more player-oriented. It's more cook-oriented, not the name of the chef or even the restaurant. And the exchange of information, right? Like, I watch the NBA and continuously in awe of how many parallels there are to cooking, particularly how offenses and defense like happens. And particularly when people say that's never going to work. That to me mm -hmm. is like ultimately where you can find the lowest hanging fruit for people to find an analogy between basketball and cooking. We could go down a deep, deep rabbit hole of all these tiny things that have associations and maybe we'll get there today or on another podcast that I'd love to do. But ultimately, when I think about what's happened with basketball, I always find it funny that people wanted to shoot the three-point shot before, right? Yeah. Yep. But what were they told? Live yeah. by the three, die by the three. That was always the saying people used late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, in some ways it was true, but not really. It uh, wasn't celebrated. Yeah, it wasn't celebrated, no. I mean, there were certain teams like the late 90s Sonics, the early 2000s Celtics with Antoine Walker and Paul Pierce, some of the 90s Rockets teams that took a lot of threes compared to the rest of the league, but not like what it is today with Houston, led by Daryl Morey and Mike D'Antoni, taking nearly half of their shots from three-point range. And they're the one team you mentioned. People are saying, like, you can't do it. Like, that's not going to work. And that's always, not just in food and sports, that's something I think cross-cultural. Anything that becomes popular in the mainstream at one point was ridiculed. And <laughs> if you're an individual that makes a decision based on data and not just intuition, but you use data to help your intuition to make better decisions, and those decisions might be completely counterintuitive to the status quo, we could talk about anything. For sure. But the idea of Mike D'Antoni not being able to play defense, never going to work, it's not basketball, ran counterintuitive to the idea that basketball had to be played by seven footers and in the post. Right? Absolutely. Like, yeah. I interviewed D'Antoni once and, and, um, <laughs> and he, he said something to me. He's like, when we throw the ball in the post, he's like, we're praying that they double team. And the reason why is because like the higher value shot opens up a three point shooter will be open somewhere. A cutter will be open going for a layup because it's what's really behind the analytics is, is simply the highest value shots on a court are layups you know, shots right near the rim, and then three-pointers. Those are undeniably statistically the highest value shots on a court. And so for teams like a team like Houston, the goal is just to get as many of those shots as you possibly can. And so for Dan Tony to say something like that, it's like, true, yeah, you do want a team to do that because it's disadvantageous to them to do that in most situations. So modern basketball changed because people started to use analytics, basically. I'd say that and the rule changes, the combination of both. Analytics are undoubtedly behind it. And it, I think it's also a little bit of copying too, right? Where you see it works for somebody else and, and you try to do it your way. Like this year, it's been interesting, Dave. Like, have you watched the Bucks at all this year? Like with Giannis Antetokounmpo and like, they have a new head coach, Mike Budenholzer, and he has completely overhauled their offense. 
So faster, way yeah, faster, way faster offense. They're moving the ball more and they're shooting more threes and they're getting to the rim more. And and what's interesting is if you look at their breakdown of like the shot distribution, it's pretty identical to Houston, but their playing styles are drastically different. So they're getting similar results in terms of the shots that they're putting up, but their process is drastically different. Milwaukee is a team that uses the posts. They're not running a lot of pick and roll like Houston does. They're a team that moves the ball a lot. Houston doesn't move the ball a lot. The way they're getting shots is different, but the shots they're getting are the same. So I think that's been interesting to me from a basketball perspective because you're seeing two teams getting it done differently but getting similar results. That's been fascinating to watch. I wonder if more teams go the Milwaukee route because what they do is more like usual basketball, and Houston does it in this extreme way with like pick and roll after pick and roll after pick and roll. But how much of it is, okay, we see what Houston's doing, and it's innovative. It challenges convention. I'd like to adopt a lot of those principles, but we don't have the team itself that like matches perfectly. So I'm going to alter this to yeah. best suit the talent of our team. And that's why it changes. It was a little bit of that. Like they added two players this offseason, Brooke Lopez and Ursan Ilyasova. They're both tall, seven foot big men who can shoot threes. And they adding those two guys has enabled them to play this style. In addition to getting a coach, just trying to fit guys into the philosophy that he wants them to play. And, the idea of shooting threes and just trying to get back to, I don't get lost in everything that we're talking about. What are the reasonings for that to change everything, right? Like, wouldn't it make more sense to just shoot dunks? I mean, to like go for like the most high efficient shots. Layups and dunks. Right. Yeah. Like, why not? I guess what I'm trying to get at is why does overwhelming data take so long to actually <laughs> affect decision making? I don't know. I really don't know why it's taken so long. I think there are some in the league that wonder why it's still taking so long, despite the, this explosion that's happened this entire decade. You still have a lot of teams that don't take a lot of three-pointers. Teams like the Spurs are, are going the other way, where they're still valuing the mid-range jumper. But in terms of like just going for layups and dunks, I think part of it, by shooting more threes and spacing the floor, it does allow you to get more layups and dunks because the floor is spaced. There's not a defender near the rim. By pulling the ball away from the rim, you are, are opening opportunities to get to the rim. I think I think it's like a push pull. It works both ways like that. In the games in like the eighties and nineties, they were like 80, 90 points total, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like now games third quarter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I saw the Bucks game the other day. They scored like forty points in the first quarter. Mm-hmm. I was like, what's going on here? Everything's moving faster, faster, faster. And again, you see that in food. And you were talking about the Bucks copying Houston. I can say the same thing about restaurants that are doing something new and they're like, wait, like Elbly was this groundbreaking restaurant. They did something extraordinary. They changed the whole game, how people think about food, what gets lost and how they made food wasn't exactly what they did, which was amazing and how they made it. What was the greatest legacy was they started to systemize and ask themselves questions and use data to support their intuition. It gets lost because they're deconstructing and it's this beautiful, romantic, dreamlike meal that is thought-provoking. It's like a high-end fashion show. And then you see someone like Heston Blumenthal, this great chef in England at the Fat Duck, taking some of those principles. But then he's like, I'm not two hours outside Barcelona on the coast. I'm in the English countryside. I got to take some of these, but adopt it as my own. And then the Fat Duck way becomes the template for other people to follow. So great ideas and food. It just always shocks me that 
the copying happens, but people copy it and then they adopt it for themselves. When it is not successful, it's because they're trying to make a facsimile of what they're trying to copy. Mm. Sounds like the Bucks in a way, right? right? Like the similar shot distribution, but they're doing it in their own way. Instead of trying to do exactly like Houston, they're doing it with the way it makes sense with their team. Are there teams that are trying to copy Houston like exactly? No. I mean, that's the weird part. So with Houston, like they do two things that's unique. Well, first of all, their shot distribution, as we already talked about. But besides that, they run pick and roll after pick and roll. That's where a big man sets a screen for a guard. It sets up like a two-on-one type of situation. And from that they can set up isolations, which we've seen for years. Allen Iverson, Kobe Bryant, guys just dribble the ball, dribble the ball, dribble the ball, take a shot. So they do that more than anybody. But there hasn't been a team that really does it to the extreme level that they do it. It's just teams are following along with the shot distribution, shooting more threes, trying to get more layups, trying to draw more fouls. But nobody has really copied their style. And I think that's because they don't have James Harden and Chris Paul, two of the greatest point guards of the decade. Again, just to reiterate, like if this knowledge was widely held for a long time, why was it never done? To get back to D'Antoni, he said something interesting. Um, I think in the mid-2000s when he was with the Phoenix Suns, and they had Steve Nash and Sean Marion, and Mario Stoudemire, some of these great, great players of the, that era. I believe he said something along the lines of like he wanted to shoot more then, but there's like a fear. Like, wait a minute. Will this work? Will this work? Am I insane? Right? Will this work? I think there's some of that where it just takes a step-by-step for someone to do it, like Houston doing it at the extreme levels that they do. Even a couple of years ago when they started shooting a lot of threes, it's not what they were now. They, they took baby steps to get to the stage, just like every other team is. I think, it's, I think that's natural. There's a little bit of fear to do it so much differently than anybody else is. Did you write that article recently about Popovich and the Spurs? I don't think I wrote about the Spurs oh. recently, no. But like, they're not no. in vogue. They're oh, doing no. mid-range jumpers. And do you think no. it's the end for them? <laughs> I'd say the end of the Spurs dynasty is certainly nearing. I think with their mid-range jumpers, part of that for them, you have DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge, who are two of the best mid-range jump shooters in the league. So let's put them in the position where they're at their best. However, you can make the argument that those guys should still be shooting threes. Like, they're not the nerd out here, but like because of math, right? Like a, a 45% mid-range jump shooter equates to 0.9 points per shot. To equate that from three, you only need, only need to shoot 30% from three. So I, I think there's an argument to be made that those guys should be shooting threes. And their style of play is certainly used to be normal five, ten years ago. Even just a couple of years ago, it used to be normal. But now it's considered old school, regressive. It's funny how that's changed when the Spurs were always the team that were always, always ahead of the curve when, when offensive styles. So you would put D'Antoni, Steve Kerr, you know, not a surprise, incredibly successful organizations that are embracing the new, right? Yeah. Every team has uh, statisticians and analytics people, right? Like, are they reading different data from people? So I think Daryl Morey is the general manager of the Houston Rockets. I've had, over the past couple of years, one or two, not many, but one or two executives be like, Morey doesn't know basketball. He's just a numbers guy. Like, there's still that conversation that happens. So I, I think maybe on the coaching side, some are slow to adapt. Right, like to them, an open shot might be an open shot, regardless of time or situation. When really that context is what matters more than anything else. So, like when it comes to those comments I heard about Maury, it's like, of course he knows basketball. He just has a different perspective about it. He's more numbers based, more so than using the eye test, like like it may have been in the past. In baseball, right, covered well by Michael Lewis and Moneyball in mm-hmm. the book and the movie. 
And that's something that I always refer to as this sort of cultural bias that prevents you from making the right decision because of hubris, quite frankly. And cooking is full of that as well. You mentioned cooking data earlier, like cooking analytics. Is that is that a thing? Well, yeah, I, I, no. And no, that's no. the thing is like, I'm a big proponent of it, not just because I see it in sports, but like when you make a decision in a kitchen, ultimately, I feel like the best kind of chef, they make a decision based off enough data because they've seen it. So mm-hmm. it may seem off the cuff, but they're using their intuition because they're constantly reading and analyzing what's working, what's not working, what combination of cooks are going to work better. Like if I have a Saturday service coming up, it's going to be really busy. I need to have a very strong garmanger up front because they're going to get hit first. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like every day you're thinking about arrangements. (laughs) And I I believe when that happens, whether people realize it or not, they're making calculations in their head. Yeah. You know, and if you're doing that, why don't we make it easier with data? So if that is the case, right? Like I'm pretty sure if we took the time you could plot out and chart out the combination of cooks in a kitchen, the combination of servers, the depth and breadth of a menu, what you're serving to the particular audience of that day and the time, the weather, you know, the season, all of this, I'm pretty sure has enough data where it probably supports someone that's done it for 30 years and be like, we should actually do this, right? And all they're saying is when they actually do this is just reading the data that's already available. So. I'm just a big proponent for having ease of information. Mm-hmm. And when I see someone talk about three-point shots, I'm like, yeah, that makes total fucking sense. Like, why are we not doing things that challenge convention more? Um, ease of information is the big one. You, you almost mean like making it understandable? Is it like consumable ease of information? Well, like, Because like, that's one thing I hear about with like coaching. is like, they, what are all these numbers? It's right? just like, you got to understand it. And like basketball, cooking is still stuck in the dark ages of like, I cook over fire and I'm a fucking dude. And it's just dumb, quite frankly, right? Like, you know, I remember talking to a chef that I don't get along with. And he was like, this is in the midst of, and I'm going to tie it all together in some timeline, but it was the midst of the culinary world was going through drastic changes of how it thought about cooking. And it was a shift from pounds and ounces to grams and the metric system. It was a shift from, I'm just going to throw ingredients in as I see fit to, I'm going to measure everything. I'm going to be precise. And there was new technology coming in. You had water circulators, you had induction stoves, you had real high-end technology trickling through all the kitchen equipment. And there was this collision that people don't talk too much about of, really old school shit in the new. And what gets celebrated is people oftentimes just do in the media, just celebrate all the new shit. But what I feel that they missed was the collision of what do we keep and what do we get rid of? Hmm. And because I think it's an easier story, people talk about the people that only address the new, which is why you got the molecular gastronomy. They do like air foam shit and whatever. I don't even know anymore, but it becomes this joke. And then you have this other extreme of, we are never going to change. And it's worked for a millennia, and it's going to continue to work. Both of those extremes don't fucking work. <laughs> they just don't, yeah. right? And I got an argument with the show. I was like, I'm going to cook over fire. I don't need to know why a chicken cooks. I don't need to know why, you know, if you cook it this way in a different way, it's better. 
I know that if I cut out the backbone and I cook it under a brick or a fire, it's going to get crispy, delicious. That's all I need to know. Nothing he said is not true. Yeah. Everything he said is true, but everything is changing. And to know exactly that there's only one way is the height of stupidity to mm-hmm. me. I want to be surrounded by people that question, that want to get better. And the culinary world for a long time was essentially we are running the half-court offense. And if you want to shoot three-pointers, you better go to Europe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. not what we do here. So for me, when I, I think about food today, I really think about Roy Hibbert and Steph Curry. <laughs> and like the two extremes. Two fucking yeah, extremes yeah, yeah. and yeah. how this could happen. <laughs> so for an audience that I might be losing rapidly right now, because <laughs> um, I just realized the fucking jump that I just made. Roy Hibbert, yeah. And French dining to, <laughs> right? The Being stuck yeah. in formality is what you're supposed yeah. to do. What happened to Roy Hibbert? Mm-hmm. And who was Roy Hibbert? Roy Hibbert was one of the game's best big men. He was a rim protector, a legitimate defensive player of the year candidate, a guy who on the offensive end was limited, though. He can only score near the rim, and he wasn't particularly like a big dunker or anything like that. But he was a good player, a really good player. And then suddenly, teams started shooting more threes, and suddenly, big men were in a position, like you mentioned, a cook unwilling to learn new techniques, Suddenly, big men had to learn how to shoot threes. A guy like Brooke Lopez was a guy who, not too different than a Roy Hibbert where he played an interior game, he's added a three-pointer in his game. The guys who haven't been able to do that have seen their roles diminished or they've fallen out of the league entirely like Roy Hibbert has. Let's take a quick break to talk about ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be pretty time-consuming. You post a job to several online job boards only to get tons of the wrong resumes. Then, you have to sort through all of those resumes just to find a few people with the right skills and experience. Those job sites that overwhelm you with the wrong resumes, they're not smart. That's why you should do the smart thing and go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter.com is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. If you love the show, show your support to it and ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's C-H-A-N-G. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I look at the three-point shot, and I could be wrong, and this is just me like conjecturing right now, is some version of a quick service restaurant for a chef. If I want to open a restaurant, why would I want to spend millions and millions of dollars to do something that ultimately I'm going to get no return on? It's going to be labor inefficient and I'm going to be set up for potential failure and criticism because who knows if I'm going to make everyone happy. You see more and more chefs, I mean, like, I'm just going to make meatballs. I'm just going to sell chicken wings. I'm just going to do this because like I can have a life. I can do things differently, but it makes more sense. It's about throughput. It's about control. But what was stunning to me was currently I feel like a lot of the people that recover food sound a lot like NBA journalists that were like, when you saw this new wave coming, they were like, this ain't basketball. Mm-hmm. Yep. You still sort of hear Feed it. Feed the ball to the low right. post. Like Charles Barkley to me, 
is like a critic that's yeah. like, this ain't basketball. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the people who on TV has said like, you know, Daryl Morey doesn't know basketball. And he's been and consistently and, and, and wrong. And are ruining the game. <laughs> yeah, ruining the, game, the game. game's more popular than ever. It's still growing rapidly. And it's more than just shooting too. You know, it's like the way analytics has changed decision-making, like with second spectrum, it has like cameras in every stadium that track every movement of the ball and players on the court. And that data that's gathered has allowed teams to make better decisions. Right? Mm. It's a multi-billion dollar business. It's allowed executives and coaches to view the game a different way to see what's a better technique. What's the better way to defend the pick and roll? What's the better way to move the ball? Little things like that. Because I think when, we, when you were talking about cooking, it seemed like a lot of it is like the arguments over the process more so than like the results. Like, the you whole get to thing the, you know, is argument, right? Yeah. Like, and like, huh. I could sound like a crazy person, but I do believe like when I think about like even Steph Curry, right, who got injured, had bad ankles, and in any other point in his life, if he was in the NBA 20 years ago, he's out of the league, probably, right? Or he's playing a heck of a lot differently than a heck of a lot different. But he started to train differently. He's like, wait, I have to do things differently because like I'm getting science that tells me that I need to train differently. And his practice routine became something that's like a spectacle in and of itself. <laughs> and all that mattered to me was what I saw over and over again, where people just ask the question, why is there a better way? And if someone ever says, this is how we've always done it, then it's out, right? Like I see that so much in food. People don't understand why things are changing. I don't even know what's happening because things are moving so fast. The three point shot to me in food is actually umami. How come? Why do you eat something, right? You eat something for nourishment, but ultimately now with technology and everyone knowing that food's this experiential thing, there's a lot of ways to get to this end goal. Mm-hmm. Most people have an idea of how to construct something that's tasty and delicious. And if everyone knows how to do that, then what are the other things that I can do to give me advantage? Okay, got to get the freshest product possible, right? So now that means having my own farm or getting things delivered immediately, like logistical things. Then it's also the construct of what a dish means to someone when they taste it. It's like, oh, there's actually science to how someone tastes something. There's only five things that you can control. Salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. Umami in and of itself was sort of a pariah for years. It was there. People didn't know that much about it, much like the three-point shot. And they were like, yeah, you can dabble there, but that's just for like Asian food. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like yeah. you take seven threes a game, yeah. you know, yeah. never more than 10. That was like a, yeah. a, like a white chef from Europe being like, I'm cooking with lemongrass. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm adding fish sauce to my food. Like, mm-hmm. and you could see how it made things better and exotic and different, but it was still on the outside looking in. And to me, the biggest change in food without people realizing all the data that's behind it is, oh, if I increase umami, it makes it actually more delicious to a customer. So, I'm going to just add as much as humanly possible. (laughs) I've been certainly guilty of it in terms of like how you do it. But like I saw the reaction like, oh, I grew up eating foods heavily in umami. And then you do the homework and you're like, wait a second. Anything I find delicious or if it's not delicious, I add something like soy sauce or Parmesan or tomatoes. And it's more delicious. Not a surprise to me. So you have a whole generation of cooks that now are willing to understand that there's more than just cooking over a fire, even though ironically fire is all the rage again, but asking themselves the hard question is like, this tastes great. Why does it taste a certain way? And is there any ratio that we can do to make it taste better? And right now you have a whole genre of cooking where everything's gone too far on umami. 
just like right now in the NBA, everyone's just jacking up threes. Yeah. Every younger chef that I see is trying to create dishes where it's just like fucking umami bomb, man. <laughs> and no question it's delicious, but it's like, have we gone too far? It's become less innovative over time because so many people are doing it. Is there less innovation? Not just that. It's I would say it's okay if they understand the process of why we even got here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What makes it good rather than, oh, it's good. Yeah, because by understanding the evolution and why things evolved a certain way, that process, you're going to have a better understanding of how to apply that to your own team. And by having that knowledge that's there, like the next generation, for instance, 50 years or 20 years from now in the NBA, you're going to have a whole generation of people, players, and I'm maybe not the GMs that don't even understand that basketball was played a different way. That's just how they played. And I, I think what's interesting to me is you're not going to have the Roy Hibbert to Steph Curry analogy anymore, right? Probably not. Probably no, not. No, no. And I think by missing that, that kind of obstacle, that kind of resistance, it's not ineffable. I have a hard time explaining that I believe in all of my bones, my body, that knowing that process makes you a better player rather than just assuming this is what I do. I'm just going to jack up threes now. It's about, you know, I think like for a big man, you still need to be able to finish inside. You still need to, be able to dunk and lay up with both hands, right? You can't go all in like you mentioned with cooking now. So many people are doing it that one way. You need to do more than just shoot threes. With the NBA, like a lot of the conversation publicly is about sometimes there's not enough like nuance, like layups and threes are typically the highest value shots. But there are certain situations in a game late in the fourth quarter or if a defense is taking that away where the mid-range jumper becomes value. You need to be versatile. So I think in that sense, when it comes to basketball and cooking, you need to be able to do both sometimes, right? Yeah. yeah. And I feel like my fear is everything is becoming just one-dimensional. All threes, all layups. Yeah. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I'm seeing yeah. cooking now. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, everyone sees how efficient it is. We don't even need to know any other way. Yeah. This is just what we're doing. When really you do. Yeah. Right? yeah. So like now you're seeing everyone just doing QSRs, everyone doing the same thing. And while there's more parity and that's great, there's less innovation and less and less people trying to do something new. So I wonder if Popovich is like, you know what, we're contrarian <laughs> and it's going to swing back the other way. It could be that. I wouldn't rule it out from happening for sure. But I think right now we're in a spot with the league where it's just heading this way and it's not going to stop unless we get to a point where there's rule changes that curtail it the other way. But this year in the NBA, they, they you know, allowed freedom of movement rules right, where you're not allowed to touch a guy in the perimeter. That is further going to push faster pace, teams moving faster, teams shooting more threes. So as of now, I don't see anything stopping it. Maybe the next Shaq enters the league and then that guy is like force fed the ball. But one player is not going to change what everybody else is doing. Mm. And that's not going to influence any other teams to do it that way either. So I, I don't see it stopping right now in the NBA. I think what's just going to be different is how teams get there. Like we talked about with Milwaukee and Houston earlier, they have two drastically different styles of play that just result in similar shots, threes, layups, dunks, and drawn fouls. So maybe that's the way it's different where teams look at the way someone's doing it and they just do it their own way with, with what makes sense for them, which I think is the good way of doing it. It's just about how fast we get there, I think. What organization do you feel like, outside of probably, obviously, the Golden State Warriors, that has embraced the new, is constantly questioning, is restless, and willing to throw it all away? Huh. Um, and it's like sort of the, the paradigm of how you'd want an organization to run. Because I feel like the more 
you might be able to understand that from a culinary end. That's almost a template for you to follow as a chef restaurant. One team that's interesting this year, the Atlanta Hawks. They hired Travis Slank from the Golden State Warriors, and he drafted Trey Young and Kevin Herter and Omari Spellman, three players who kind of fit like what they did in Golden State. And like, I'm not a big fan of that deal that they made this summer, but they're a team that seems to be trying to do it their way with an influence of what's happening now, and we'll see how that works. But they're one team that's like a, a non-playoff team that comes to mind that, that's trying to build a team the way the system is working today. And did analytics there take over common sense for them to pass over Luca? <laughs> I'm not sure what happened with that, Dave. I really am not. That that that's um, could end up being uh, a, a devastating decision long term. Even though Trey Young is a good player, good young player for sure. But like maybe ten years from now, we're going to be celebrating that move as like that was the bold move to yeah. do. Yeah, it could it could be if Trey Young pans out into the player. Um, another team that comes to mind: Toronto Raptors. They're a team that's taken a lot of mid-range jumpers over the years with DeMar DeRozan. Then last year, under head coach Dwayne Casey, their style of play changed drastically. Started passing more often. Started taking more threes. And that's been taken to another extreme level with their new head coach, Nick Nurse, this year with Kawhi Leonard replacing DeMar DeRozan. More threes, more ball movement. They're one of the better teams that's changed their style. And made a bold decision to do that, right? And that's actually my template of when I think about where I want my organization to be mirror after, it's actually the Raptors and the general manager is Masai. Masai Ujiri. Who's yep. so amazing. Mm. I mean, I just think he has the biggest balls out there. He does. <laughs> you know? He's willing to get fined swearing in public by the NBA too. Yeah, I, I just he's, admire he's very, very what they've done. And yeah, besides yeah. Us, me cheering for the Raptors because I, I, I love that organization, I feel like what they do and what they represent really should be reflective Willing I think to embrace more, change, like that, that yeah. type of mindset. Yeah. And, and to be like, hey, we screwed up. And mm-hmm. obviously they could have done better in how they communicate certain things, especially by letting DeMar go. But I legitimately look at what they do and all their moves and I read the all the blogs mm-hmm. about them because I find it fascinating as to they admitted that like we tried everything, it didn't work, and we're going to try everything again and we're all in on this. And it's a very thoughtful way of building a team. And I can't help but think that what they are is the representative of what a modern restaurant should look like if you're going to be a four-walled restaurant with, like, say, like, 60 seats. If that makes any sense at all, (laughs) I'm realizing how fucking insane that sounds like. I think think I know what you mean, though, because with Toronto, there's still reminders of their past. They still have players from those years when they just ran into LeBron James every year in the playoffs, and they're just jacking up mid-range jumpers. They still have Kyle Lowry. They still have Jonas Valanciunas. They still have some of these important players, but they've also brought in the new as well. They've innovated their own style that was existing and adapted what's, what's working in today's league, which is threes, layups, ball movement, passing. And that's what I see yeah. is like they've seen that, oh, shit, things are changing. We need to change to get up ahead of this. Or you're done. Or you're done. Yeah. And again, I, I spoke about this with Kevin Clark about the NFL. I see this time and time again without even talking about any other organizations in in the restaurant world, specifically in mine, right? Like, if we are afraid of embracing change, and really the change is happening because shit is just moving faster. Like, so fast that if you stop to think about it, you're screwed, so you can't think about it. You just got to, like, follow your gut, and we're trying to adopt things that embrace or build in that sort of constant anarchy and keeps us on our toes. So I don't know if the Raptors will ever win it all, but 
I have a, a strong kin to what they're trying to do. They've increased their odds. And like, isn't that like the best way good things are created is by blending different styles, taking one thing and doing it your way. The example that always comes to mind to me, I'm a big Jimi Hendrix fan. Like he's a blues guitarist. The licks he was playing, the things he was playing in the 60s were blues style guitar, but put distortion on top of that and innovate a rock sound of that. Combining two different styles made something new that birthed a whole new movement. With today's league, if you can, I would love to see a team that can play that low post style. And maybe the Bucks are this team with Giannis, where you have this post presence that's unstoppable and you have three pointers around him taking the old with the new. I think that might be the way to really innovate something new right. in today's league because you're taking something old and doing it in a new way. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I feel like what I think about it is like problems happen when you don't adapt, you just copy. And right now in the world of food, there's too many people copying and it's so hard to resist that urge. But yeah, I mean, if it works in basketball. It should work everywhere else. Um, the things that I see time and time again are you can't do this because it's not going to work, right? And you could check that off on just about anything in food from you have to have a bread service program, you have to have dessert, you have to wear penguin suits. And like, I even think something like Sam Hinkie, right? Like, mm. or Chip Kelly and to a lesser degree, Mike D'Antoni, because I feel like the NBA has sort of weirdly been more open to change. Definitely. More so than like the Kevin Clark podcast, like NFL is just so slow to, right. to, to accept anything other than the status quo. NBA, still slow, but they're willing to at least be open-minded to it. And that's, that's sort of how I, I think about it more as a philosophy for food as to where things going because of the static versus the things that need to change. And, but I can think about it. If you want to get the nitty gritty about basketball and all the players, it's, when I think about the construction of a team, and like it always depends actually on even who my group of talent is. If they are mostly fans of soccer, they're always soccer <laughs> analogies. But more and more, I find that I have to use basketball analogies because basketball seems to be the sport that people are more, they can more relate to. Not baseball anymore. It's football. It's like not a surprise. Like basketball is more popular than ever before. And what I'm trying to explain to people is like positions. Like the NBA is positionless right now, mm -hmm. right? And Right now in kitchens, I believe that it's positionless as well. The versatile wings who can switch, defend multiple positions. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. Like, How does that manifest in a kitchen? Well, before that, if you had a team that wanted to draft a player that was in between a position. Mm -hmm. Tweener. Tweener. Like he's, that he's was a, a thing. He's not a guard. He's not a wing. You know, he's six foot three. He's not big enough. But today it's like, yeah. Let's figure out just who he is and put him there. He can he can play a guard on offense, but on defense, we can put him up position. He can defend bigger guys. But for strong. a long time, that no one knew what to do with these quote-unquote tweeners, yeah, right? Like, yeah. they got docked because they weren't one specific thing. Now everybody wants a tweener. Again, a tweener that's a perfect power, yeah. example. So I look at this now as when I started cooking, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> the kitchens I loved the most is when you had a position called the tournant. That basically means roundsman. So every day, depending on the day, knowing that things are going to get fucked up, someone might not call in or you need to like augment a position. This person that is good enough and open enough where he or she can do anything and everything. So they're constantly trained on every station, right? I'm like, <laughs> I remember having this conversation. I was like, why aren't we all trained as tournants? Like, it would make way more yeah. sense to me than if I only know my position, right? Like, 
a traditional French brigade where you're having an island and you have four to six people cooking on it. So if you're one person cooking meat, one person cooking fish, one person doing the vegetables, another person doing like the hot appetizers. But the person that's doing the vegetables is oftentimes doing the sides for the fish and the meat course. And I remember asking a sous chef once, I was like, why don't you cross-train the person that makes vegetables with how they cook meat and how they cook? It would just make more sense, but they're like, you can't do that. I'm like, why? It's like, you got to know your station. You got to work like six months before you get there. It's like, I want to wait, but I just want to know more about the station in relation to how I cook something. So I was highly unsuccessful at arguing for a tournant position. This might sound totally ridiculous, but ultimately chefs and restaurants didn't know what to do with someone that was multifaceted and understood all different angles. So they're just like, some people just didn't know what to do with them. Now, we were trying to train all of our cooks oh, wow. to know everything. Hmm. No more Roy Herberts. Yeah. Wait, like you can't have someone that can play point guard, but just because they're 6'10", they can't play point guard. Yeah. It's always shocking to me that I was like, we still have this antiquated notion of who could play point guard when Magic Johnson was probably the most successful point guard as a mm-hmm. 6'9 point guard that yeah. wasn't fast, yeah. that wasn't particularly athletic. But at the end of the day, the motherfucker just won. And like, I get so frustrated when I see my profession being like, we know we have this awesome position. We should train everyone to be more like this position. Why don't we? The simple answer is like, I think we just don't know how to manage it. So we're not going to do it. That's interesting. That's changing, right? Like where you're, where you're training people to do different things because most days of the week, they probably are just doing the one thing, right? But there's always a time where they may need to do something else. And like, you want them to be ready You got to be that, ready. Right? You got to be ready for it. So we don't have a pastry chef at most of our restaurants. Some things suffer because, but like we do what we can execute. And more and more, I realize just the temperament of a younger cook. And I'm not saying younger in age and literally like the wisdom they have because there's more access to how things get made through YouTube, through internet, that they don't have (laughs) to just wait six months to learn how to make something. Like legitimately... You wouldn't learn how to make a dish at a restaurant 20 years ago unless you worked there for like a minimum of a year. Like you were stuck. Plug it on YouTube now. Yeah. So like that ceiling's fucking gone. So I have to keep them engaged. If they are making the same dish every day for like two Mm -hmm. weeks, you know what? Like for a long time, I was like, they need to keep on doing it over and over and over again. They're going to fucking walk. So like I got to see the people that get restless and be like, okay, Why are you restless? Ultimately, it's because you're bored. But like, I found that if I have someone work all these other stations, by the time they get back to what they were bored at, their increased perception and awareness Uh, and empathy makes them better at the thing that they were bored at. So it's no longer boring to them. Instead of doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, they're doing different things. It's coming back with a new, fresher perspective, learn new experiences. They can apply to that dish that maybe before they would have just done consistently for three months straight. And I shit you not, the reason I think this way is because I couldn't understand why tweeners were, were not celebrated more. Or I swear, yeah, yeah, I swear yeah, to God, yeah, that's yeah, literally my yeah. understanding of, wait, we need to fucking drop yeah. how we've done it and just embrace the fact that we have cooks that want to move. They want to be more free to do whatever they want. It's kind of like Shane Battier is the player who comes to mind right now. Like He, he was a player in the 2000s and the early 2010s where he was like a six foot eight player who didn't put up big numbers, maybe like seven points per game, six rebounds per game. But like analytically, he was considered one of the best players in the league for his role. 
And that's because he was versatile. He could defend multiple positions. He did all the little things. He shot threes well. He finished at the rim well. He did all these little role player things for your team. He was Draymond Green before Draymond? Draymond before Draymond in a way. Draymond's another one of those guys where he just does a lot of things well for your team. Draymond leads the Warriors in assists, not Steph Curry. Draymond Green, their center, leads the team in assists. He's one of their primary playmakers. He's also a versatile defender who can defend big men, wings, and guards. Today, I think those players can thrive. Like Shane Battier today would probably even been a better player today than he would have been in the time that he played. Draymond Green, 10, 15 years ago, probably would have been a backup. I don't think a team would have had the willingness to. In fact, to he was a second-round draft pick. He was a second-round pick. People didn't yeah. understand how to unlock that yeah. potential. And, and if a team, different team drafted him, he might have never turned into the player that he had with Golden State. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing that sort of drives me insane when I see how many times I've probably missed or my own organization or others just simply because we weren't looking in the right area. We were looking at something, but we were defining it by a stupid, antiquated notion of what was going to work instead of being sort of really open mm. to the possibilities. I see that all the time. And I actually think about Draymond Green all the fucking time. <laughs> Ser- seriously, because I'm like, it's again, it's less about the plays, but there's actual decisions because there's so much information as to how it happens. I know he's the 35th draft pick and no one knew what to do with him. No one really knew. And ultimately, too, I guess like he didn't know himself. But like, had he had proper coaching beforehand, who knows? Everything's right place, right time. But I always admire Draymond. I don't always admire his brashness, but the fact that like he's <laughs> carved out something and no one knows why he's actually good at anything. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? And there's but nobody like, like Draymond. He's, he's so good at defense, but you're saying he's slow and he doesn't have fast reactions, but he's always the right place, right time. So to me, when I think about Draymond Green, I'm like, I use this example to people that follow basketball as cooks. I was like, I don't need you to be the best cook. Acknowledge that the person that's cooking fish roast right now, they're a better cook than you are. Just don't even Mm -hmm. fucking argue that. Accept it. But that doesn't mean they're going to be a better chef than you, right? Like that doesn't mean that they're going to be irreplaceable. Like it's understanding your role and finding ways to do it better. And I wish I could find a better example than Draymond Green, but I drop his name all the fucking time. Draymond's a good example. Right? It's like, a good one. Just win. Right? Do whatever you need to do to win. And winning in a restaurant to me is making sure a customer leaves ecstatic, feeling they got value and there was a fun, dynamic experience. However we get there, who cares if like we don't follow the traditional notion of what happened before? We're taking a quick break to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird. Academy Award-winning screenwriter and playwright Aaron Sorkin was recently on the Bill Simmons podcast discussing his long career in great movies and shows, including my favorite, The West Wing, The Newsroom, and The Social Network. He has a new play on Broadway, an adaption of Harper Lee's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, which was recently voted America's best-loved novel of all time. To Kill a Mockingbird has become one of the most popular and toughest tickets to get on Broadway. It has set the record as the highest grossing American play in Broadway history. It has also been selected as a critic's pick by the New York Times and has been called one of the greatest plays in history by NPR. Two-time Emmy Award winner Jeff Daniels, The Newsroom and Godless and Dumb and Dumber, my favorite, stars live on stage as Atticus Finch. Brett Lang from Variety called it one of the greatest stage successes of this or any Broadway season. It has not played to a single empty seat. And Peter Travers from Rolling Stone gave it five stars, said it was unforgettable and unmissable. And while To Kill a Mockingbird is sold out for the next several months, 
Tickets would make a fantastic Valentine's Day gift when purchased for available performances this coming summer or fall. Tickets are available directly through telecharge.com or the show's website, to kill a mockingbird broadway.com. That's to kill a mockingbird broadway.com. Even on a menu, it's becoming less and less appetizer entree. It's become more like graze, pick and choose what you want. It's changed with how people eat. People want to share food more. The idea of a huge entree still bothersome to some people that are tied to the old. Guess what? That's just how Mm. I feel the younger generation wants to eat. Why would I give them something that takes longer? You know, and an entree might cost 38 bucks. I think that it might be better to give them four things that are like 12 bucks and yeah, yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like yeah. more opportunity, more, more shots. And I'm totally fucking aware that the skill and the labor and the beauty and the craftsmanship of creating this beautiful entree, that's greater art, a greater craftsmanship and higher level of execution and difficulty. But it doesn't mean you're going to fucking win. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so that's yeah. how I'm constantly looking at it is like, wait, who cares? How do we challenge the convention? And when I look at a, a traditional menu, how, how it's changed is how I've always approached it is, who cares if an entree is less expensive than one of your appetizers or your smaller plates? Like people know that. They're going to figure that out, but there's huge arguments. Like, can you charge a small plate that's like 23 bucks? Like, <laughs> who cares? All that matters is, does it good? And do people perceive value from it? And people get so lost in my profession about following the categories. And that's when I see stupid shit happen all the time. Following the categories. You know, it's like in basketball. It's not just point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center anymore. It's really bigger guys and smaller guys. And then the ones in between. Right. And like within those roles, you have your traditional, like you mentioned, an appetizer typically is cheaper than an entree. Typically, a bigger player isn't going to be the guy handling the ball. But just because he's bigger doesn't mean that he shouldn't. Ben Simmons, Draymond Green, like Magic Johnson, those guys, if they have those skill, if the appetizer should be the more expensive meal, it should be. And it's funny, like there are restaurants out there that there's a specific genre where they're really great restaurants and they're much beloved. But most people feel like once you get past like the small plate appetizers, they're not special. So they're like, they get docked. But everyone's going to say it's an awesome restaurant. <laughs> like their starters, more or less, are so fucking good that it makes their entrees <laughs> not that relevant. And I'm like, who cares? Yeah. Don't order that then. <laughs> you know what I mean? You like, just get five apps, love, apps yeah, right? Yeah. If you love the left side of the menu, who gives a shit if you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's constantly why I have to think about sports when I read or listen to what you're saying. I'm like, oh, it reaffirms me like, We should do things a little bit differently. And when I really start thinking about basketball, sometimes football (laughs) is when like a critic's in the house or it was like a super VIP that we need to impress. And like Simmons always talks about the five players you want on the last two minutes of a game, right? Like that's what I think about. Like when we're developing a new restaurant, I'm like, I need to have at least three people, at least that I know can handle a situation. The pressure of a crush being in there. Right? And I need yeah. one person to shoot the fucking shot. And, <laughs> and like that pressure when the critic is in the restaurant is exactly like a last second shot. <laughs> it's so crazy to me. There's so much pressure. And 
I love that thrill, man. And like, I'm totally okay. I'm not okay if we miss mm-hmm. it. And like, you know, there's stretches when we fuck shit up, but like. Is that a hurdle? Like when that critic's in and you're like, oh, now we're oh. going to really find out if this person is who I think they are. Yeah. And you, you, you have a knowledge of them. Well, like last night, a critic came into one of our restaurants. I got an email like, I want the kitchen to be on the offense and the front of the house to be defense and to be like full on pressure. We're not fucking giving up. And like switching where people have fucked up in the past and we've done it before is like, it's inevitable when a critic comes in, you know, a critics in the house, they probably know. And like, hopefully you don't miss it. But the reality is you don't want, you do not want to treat them differently than anyone else. You want to be so accustomed to excelling under pressure that this is just another fucking yeah, shot. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, this is just another fucking diner. I'm going to fucking crush you. I don't care. And like <laughs> where things go wrong is when people stop doing the system, stop listening to the coaching and they start to freelance. They start to be their own fucking like boss. And they're like J.R. Smith. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. When I saw J.R. Smith, yeah. I was like, I know so many fucking cooks and, and servers like J.R. Oh, Smith. Man. They're like yeah. under the pressure. Mm-hmm. They freeze. They don't know what to do. Right. And they fuck it up. That's why sports to me is this crazy thing of constantly thinking about food. And what you would like to see when given a situation where you are dealing with a critic in a dining room is everyone's being treated the same. And also when we're training and we try to train throughout because you want people to know not to be scared when there's a pressure filled moment, when you have to deliver I've worked in restaurants and every restaurant I've ever worked in has done the same thing. Fire ticket X. It's like training for a fire alarm when a critic or super PX, a person extraordinary comes in. And the funny thing is, is every fucking time, at least growing up and watching this, the same server, the same manager and the same like chef, like they make the food, they do it themselves. It's not how it works. It never works that well. Like all of a sudden you're changing your offense because of one situation instead of just doing what you should have been doing the entire time and letting people that do this on an everyday basis do it. But simultaneously, I've learned that you need to train multiple people to handle the last second shot. Yeah. Yep. That's so hard. Yeah. And people are like, why? I'm like, today you're not doing this. We just sometimes when we're training, we just make shift a table and treat them like a critic or some like a president or someone. And like we tried to add scenarios where they're like, oh, so you actually practice these? Oh scenarios. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, have you ever like lied to your team? Like, oh, that person? Oh, all the time. Yeah. I forgot about. It. I do this so much. We had opened up in Australia, and we opened up a casino. And I love doing friends and family, which is essentially like preseason to practice shit out. Mm-hmm. I never look at a soft opening as something that's beneficial for the diner. I don't care if the diner has a bad meal or not. They're friends and family. They're the last of my mm-hmm. concern. <laughs> it's about processing new mm-hmm. plays and how we're going to do different situations. So we had a packed dining room and we had the bar open up front. And there's always a pressure situation when you have to turn the sheets to get the new diners in. I told a group of diners that I knew to not leave. To just stay uh, there. Yeah, yeah. To stay there for the entire night of service. And I'm just going to feed them drinks. And I wanted to see how our team was going to react. Are they going to be antagonistic? And there was actually one solution. I wanted them to move the new diners to the bar. 
and to start their meal there. And then to figure out how we were going to compensate them, whether comp the meal or whatever, but use this situation as an opportunity to turn lemons into lemonade and then to mm-hmm. navigate that. So there was actually one way. The new diners came in that I had also planted. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. it was like practicing yeah. uh, like a last second shot, right? <laughs> Like what they were going to do. And my managers froze and they said, we can't seat you. Mm. And they did not know what to do with the diners that wouldn't leave. Mm. And I told them, I was like, guys, you didn't do what was common sense. Mm -hmm. You were trying to like think it through and make a decision that you thought was going to be right instead of just like trusting the process, right? Which I use all the time, (laughs) trusting the process. Shout out Sam Hankey and Sixers. It's really true shit. (laughs) And I like to practice those scenarios, not all the time to get people ready because why would you prepare for best case scenarios? Especially Mm -hmm. in like a game ending shot. Like I've already seen this, like oftentimes when a critic will sit down and you notice as a critic, you have potentially your worst server. Absolutely. You've only prepared for the best case scenario. Anyway. It's fascinating. Like two things came to mind just now. A, football analogy. Like Bill Belichick, he is somebody who first day of training camp, like he'll squirt water on the ball. Like if it's a perfectly sunny day, he wants the team to practice when the ball is wet. He'll put the team in these bad situations in order to help them improve to get used to those situations. So like when the ball's at the two-yard line and they call Malcolm Butler into the game, they've already practiced that situation, right? Yeah. They've already done that. The other thing that came to mind is like you mentioned how you set up that situation with your team. I had an executive tell me, when they bring in like a draft prospect, they're working out a guy. Sometimes when they have a one-on-one, a one-on-one matchup at the end of the game or three-on-three, and like they'll tell the player the wrong score just to see the way he reacts. Like if it's actually 15 to 12, they'll flip the score and say, oh, you're down 15 to 12. See if the player gets angry. See if the player's like, okay, whatever. I'm going to keep battling anyway just to get an idea of his character and how he reacts in those adverse moments. Little things like that are, when it comes to training, are critical. There are tons of similarities like that. Even like the cooks that do really well, their family was in it beforehand. Like mm-hmm. it could be a completely different restaurant, but they know what to expect. They're just Steph better prepared Curry for and it. Del Curry. Exactly. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. Donovan Mitchell. It doesn't matter. Like you you sort of know. And like, yeah, I look at basketball more about philosophy of what you can and cannot do rather than the specific plays. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's far-fetched to even compare football to cooking, but it gives me great insight as to like, am I on the right path or not? When I hear you talk or just watching basketball in general, mm-hmm. and I think ultimately it's a good excuse for me just to watch sports. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good, that's definitely a good <laughs> excuse, especially if you can tie it into what your life revolves around, right? I think there's always things to learn from other areas, other sectors of life and apply it to what you do. So it's good that you do then. Teams should maybe be looking into the cooking world or teams should be looking into music or whatever other fields to figure out how they can best maximize what it is they do, whether it's in their front office or on the basketball court itself. What's the next thing? What's the next Um, thing in basketball? I think right now we're at a point where it's just going to continue on this path with a lot of teams shooting threes, a lot of teams really just trying to play this style. I think what could be next is more teams maybe, I'm not really sure, but I I do think what could be next is that we see a team that just plays like all big guys, like all six foot seven and above. Right, if you can get one of those guys, like a Ben Simmons type who can handle the ball with size, what's the point of having a smaller player? Maybe that's one way teams change is just trying to get size rather than size that can play on the perimeter rather than just perimeter players, if that makes any sense. 
Makes a lot of sense. That's I, what I would do if I were hired as GM. I'd try to build a big team. Well, that's what the Kings are trying to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how effective it is. But they have De'Aaron Fox, though, a, a smaller point guard. But besides that, yeah, they're big. Really big. There are things that happen in the NBA where you're like, oh, I don't understand why they're doing it. And that's why I'm actually so curious to see what the fuck the Kings are doing. Because like maybe like I don't know what they're doing, but maybe they have some data that no one else knows. And I'm so curious when I see people in the business taking positions that initially your reaction is like, that's dumb, (laughs) you know, but it's not, they're doing something for a purpose and a reason. So it's truly why I look at what is happening in basketball. And especially this year, I'm watching more and more basketball, not because of working with the ringer. I just feel like there's so much shit happening right now that is changing that there's a lot to glean from. It's a great game right now. Yeah. It is. Thank you, KSC. Thank you, Dave. It's <laughs> fun. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my podcast with Kevin O'Connor. You know, I thought about it after listening to it again. One of the interesting things about the three-point shot and how we might find something analogous to cooking is I keep on thinking about cooking with umami as maybe the better way of how cooks today make food and how we construct restaurants. Because at the end of the day, that's something that everyone can do. It's sort of a low barrier of entry for someone to create a menu and and create delicious food. Like cooking today is better than ever before and you can eat delicious all around the world. But the thing is, do you have something to say? And just because you know how to do it doesn't mean you know how to execute it well and so on and so forth. So I keep on thinking about a comment that Kobe Bryant recently said about James Harden. The irony is that like playing team ball coming from Kobe Bryant is hilarious to me because Kobe Bryant was notoriously a one-man team. But I think he brings up a good point because James Harden right now is on this prolific tear with the Houston Rockets, partly because of injuries and they've been totally ravaged by injuries. And he's been on this historic sort of run of of playing basketball in a way that no one's ever played before. But you can get to the playoffs. But I think what Kobe's trying to say is you still need to know how to play defense. You still need to know how to have intuition to sort of make in-game adjustments. And at the end of the day, You know, data only gets you so far. You still need to know how to do all the other things. And I think a great restaurant, again, is like anything else, even a sports championship team, it's an accumulation of all the things that don't matter other than the stats. So I think that a lot of restaurants understand that. I certainly do because, you know what, if you fall short, it's not just because you didn't have the right umami construction or the dish construction. It's all these other things. And I won't go on and talk about that forever. I'd like to get some other guests to explore what that means. But, you know, I I think there's a lot there. I, I don't know how to articulate better, but when I look at the recent Super Bowl, that was one, I thought it was beautiful. I really did by the Patriots. It just shows you that if you have a better understanding and if you know your industry and your domain better than anyone else, you don't really have to succumb to pressure from outside forces. You can do what you think is right and sort of subvert and undermine whoever you're playing against. And as ugly as that football game was, I genuinely thought it gave me hope because it's more than numbers. Numbers can help you make better decisions, but ultimately it's about intuition and wisdom. And as great as Sean McVay is, you know, 
Bill Belichick is the greatest of all time, and he's got many years. And Sean McVay may very well be as good as Bill Belichick or greater one day. But all the data and all the numbers doesn't explain to you how to make better decisions in the moment under duress. And that's why I believe the Patriots won. And again, that's how I viewed the Super Bowl. I was continuing to, I was, I was looking at it in, a, in, in how a, a restaurant and different restaurants are constructed. And that's just how my stupid brain works. I will shut up now. Please give us five stars on however you rate your podcast. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week. <laughs>